Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Well, in today's program, we're going to be talking about war and peace and the price we pay for maintaining a huge nuclear arsenal. The first half of exploration, we're going to bring on two special guests who are veterans of the nuclear weapons program. Michael Magellet and James Oskins, author of a disturbing book called Broken Arrow. In other words, the secret history of U.S. nuclear accidents. Did you know that we've dropped nuclear bombs on people's backyards? Hydrogen atomic bombs dropped on South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, on Greenland. Uh, you name it, we've had all sorts of different kinds of nuclear weapons accidents. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Michael Moore, not the filmmaker, but the peace activist, author of the book Twilight War, The Folly of U.S. Dominance. Did you know there's a secret war going on even as we speak? A war being fought in outer space in preparation for Star Wars 2.0. So we're talking about a secret war. A war that's going on between the great powers as they test anti-satellite weapons, killer satellite weapons, and all sorts of different kinds of devious weapons in outer space. And so once again, we have two parts to today's exploration. In the first part, we talk about the price of maintaining a nuclear weapons arsenal. In other words, nuclear weapons accidents, the secret history. And the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about a twilight war. The war that's going on even as we speak in outer space. Michael Machelet and James Oskins are two retired members of the military, and believe it or not, they were in charge of handling nuclear weapons, that is, atomic and hydrogen bombs capable of wiping out New York City or Los Angeles. Weapons of incredible power, and did you know that they've actually fell out of bomb bays of jets, actually landed on people's backyards in South Carolina? And did you know that they were actually snagged by a tree in North Carolina and almost were set off? Did you know that you can actually reclaim a nuclear weapon on your own? Because a nuclear weapon was dropped off the coast of Georgia. It's still there. No one yet has been able to reclaim that nuclear weapon. And did you know that we dropped several hydrogen bombs off the coast of Spain near a tourist town? It caused a mass panic and evacuation of that tourist town. And submarines, submarines had to be sent down to grab one hydrogen bomb that landed intact in the Mediterranean. The submarine Alvin, in fact, was sent down to grab that hydrogen bomb. It reached out, grabbed the hydrogen bomb, and missed. And the hydrogen bomb then tumbled, tumbled on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean till it finally came to rest. Did you know there's an entire secret history of our handling of nuclear weapons. 
listening to Michael Magellay and James Hoskins, you would think that Butterfingers are operating our nuclear weapons arsenal. Well, to be fair, the U.S. military operates tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, especially at the height of the Cold War, and the Russians did too. They had their share of nuclear weapons accidents. In fact, some of their nuclear weapons accidents were even greater than the nuclear accidents that we suffer here in the United States. Now, fortunately, none of these weapons detonated. However, we came very close to an accidental detonation in North Carolina. Goldsboro, North Carolina, was almost wiped out the face of the earth when a hydrogen bomb was snagged by a tree as it fell out of the bomb bay of a jet, landed on a tree, snagged by its parachute, and luckily the safeties did not go off. Otherwise, literally, we would have lost Goldsboro, North Carolina. So listen to the secret history of nuclear weapons. And let's hope and pray that none of our nuclear weapons accidentally goes off. The first question for you, Mike, is how did you get interested in the whole concept of nuclear weapons accidents? Well, I was a nuclear weapons specialist in the Air Force from 1980 to 1995, and I retired in 1995. Uh, during most of my time in service, I had a big interest in uh, the history of our career field. And after I got out, I decided I was going to create a web page and research some of the history. And in the process, uh, I learned, of course, you know, a lot of this stuff wasn't public, and we had to do a lot of digging. And in the course of my research, we discovered that there were three Air Force specialty codes in the nuclear weapons career field. There was mechanical, mechanical assembly, there was uh, electronics, and there was uh, nuclear components. And Jim happened to be a, a person who worked on the uh, nuclear components, and he knew a chief master sergeant that I knew overseas. So from that point on, uh, we're doing research for our, our website. We decided, well, why don't we write a book about broken arrows? Because we knew there, there's a lot of information coming into the public domain. And uh, from that point on, uh, we, spent, we spent several years gathering information, requesting information. And the end result, of course, is our book, Broken Arrow, The Declassified History of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Accidents. Okay. And, uh, Jim, precisely how did you obtain this information? Uh, through a lot of correspondence with different government agencies, uh, the information is not held by a single agency, unfortunately. We've contacted the um, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, the National Nuclear Security Administration, Department of Energy, Air Force Safety Command, Air Force Historical Research Agency, the National Archives, Department of Energy, Nevada, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Army, uh, a lot of correspondence and a lot of patience. Okay, now let's get right into the whole concept of Broken Arrow. Some of these incidences have, in fact, gone into the public domain, but in a very sketchy way, you guys have compiled the largest and most complete set of information concerning these incidences. However, when I spoke in South Carolina once, uh, people gave me some news clippings, news clippings of what happens in 1958. It was Mars Bluff, Florence, South Carolina. A uh, B-47 bomber dropped an atomic bomb on the Gregg family. Uh, the Gregg family heard this explosion. They went outside. The woodshed was blown apart. 
And later, the military came in and paid them off, paid them off to keep their mouths shut about that incident and, of course, to pay for some of the damage. And they also came in to bulldoze some of the soil. However, you got the goods. I just have some newspaper clippings. What actually happened in 1958 in Florence, South Carolina? Mike. Uh, There was a B-47 aircraft that was flying at uh, approximately 35 to 40,000 feet. And uh, (laughs) what apparently happened is one of the crew members, the aircraft was either carrying a Mark VI bomb or we believe a... um, Oh, possibly a uh, Mark 36 bomb. And how does that compare with the Hiroshima bomb, by the way? It was the Mark 6. Basically, was an improved Fat Man bomb, uh, like the Nagasaki large, bomb. Uh, yes, a large implosion weapon. Uh, basically, an improved version of the the Fat Man and the Mark 4, uh, or it could have been a Mark 36 uh, early thermonuclear weapon, which required, of course, a, a capsule of nuclear weapons material. And during that time frame, of course, they kept the capsule separate in the crew compartment. Uh, we know that the uh, there was an inadvertent release, as they put it in the documentation. And, of course, the, the weapon dropped and uh, impacted with the ground. And, when, when of course, that happened to have about 5,000 pounds of high explosives. Now, it was the conventional explosive that detonated, right? We should make that clear. There's yes. been no accidental nuclear detonation ever. But Correct. this was the conventional explosive that detonated. Right. The, the early uh, fission weapons and the early thermonuclear bombs had what was called a capsule, and this was kept separate until immediately before strike, or uh, you know, the, either a crew member had to go in and manually insert the nuclear material, in the case of the Mark VI, or in the case of, say, uh, later early thermonuclear types, it was already installed, but there was an electromagne- uh, electromechanical mechanism, a screwjack mechanism, to put it in that the uh, bomb commander could, you know, just flick a switch. And, of course, uh, now you mentioned, of course, the, uh, the apparent lack of radiation. That's, that's, it is pretty interesting because uh, those early bombs do contain a, uh, a quantity of uh, uh, natural uranium in the tamper. So, yeah, there, there probably was some radioactive, uh, real slight radioactive contamination, but the problem, I think, is, it was in a swampy area, and in the case of, you mentioned Thule, uh, when, when you have, like, water and, you know, residual uh, contaminants around, the uh, survey instruments don't pick this material up. Okay, and Jim, uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, cleanup operation. Uh, what, what happens when you drop an atomic bomb on someone's backyard and you have to go in and clean up the mess? Exactly what happens? Well, it depends on the weapon. Um, in that case, um, as Mike mentioned, there there probably would be some residual uh, radioactivity from the tamper, but the tamper was composed of what we now call depleted uranium, which actually is a is a very low level uh, radioactive element. In my career, actually, I worked on a lot of that. It's not very hazardous unless you ingest it. Uh, as far as cleanup goes, um, there's not much to it. Uh, the high explosive was more or less fragmented that. Um, just leaving leaving it on the surface, basically, to be scooped up. 
Now, it was mentioned that the bomb might have been an improved Nagasaki bomb. Uh, the Nagasaki bomb was a plutonium bomb. Uh, plutonium is the most toxic chemical known to science. So is it conceivable that plutonium rather than uranium was released in that incident in 1958 in South mm -hmm. Carolina? No. And the how's that? Plutonium would have been contained in the capsule. Mm -hmm. And the capsule was not inserted. The capsule was not on board the aircraft at the time. Aha. Uh -huh. So it was not fully loaded then when the bomb was dropped? No, it was not. So there was no danger of a real detonation taking place, but it was no. a broken arrow. No, there was not. I see. Okay. Now let's move on. Uh, you'd think that the military would have learned its lesson dropping atomic bombs on people's backyards. Let's now talk about Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, where several hydrogen bombs apparently were dropped, according to the press reports. According to the press reports, uh, every hydrogen bomb has safeties on them, four or five safeties, and all but one of the safeties on one of the hydrogen bombs was set off when its parachute was snagged on a tree, causing a jolt, and the jolt acts almost accidentally set off that hydrogen bomb, according to press reports. Uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara indirectly referred to that incident, stating in, in public that there was one incident where we came very close to an accidental detonation of a nuclear weapon on the United States. Now, these are, of course, published reports. Tell us now what actually happened. Mike? Well, the, uh, the aircraft was flying an airborne alert mission. It was a B-52, and uh, uh, I believe that one was uh, a breakup in midair. And what happened was the aircraft, the, the weapons, the Mark 39 weapons inside the aircraft were uh, locked in the U-2 uh, locking me mechanism. The, the, basically, it was like a bicycle chain that wrapped around the weapon and held the weapon in the bomb bay. It was a rather primitive system, but I guess it worked under the circumstances. Uh, the aircraft broke up in flight, and in the process of it, you know, catching fire and breaking up and spinning out of control, the, uh, the weapons were torn free from the bomb bay. And in the process, of course, uh, the, say the bomb rack separated from the shackle and the weapon, and of course it, it pulled the arming rod. Now, there's no electrical power applied to the weapon, but uh, in the early days, in the early weapons, once you pulled, the, say, an arming rod, it activated a low-voltage thermal battery. And that started the chain of events. Uh, some of the, one of the weapons, of course, uh, was uh, fell with a parachute, which is, I guess, pretty fortunate because it was recovered intact. And that's the weapon that, uh, that uh, of course, they recovered with the parachute in the famous picture. Now, the other weapon fell free, free fall, and uh, there's a number of the uh, mechanisms that, of course, were activated. Of course, as we mentioned, the arming wires were pulled. Uh, a pulse generator was act activated. Uh, there's a number of other components, uh, explosive actuators. There were timers, uh, safety timers that have to run before other uh, components are armed or activated. Uh, for example, there's barrel switches, there's inertial switches. Uh, high-voltage thermal battery. And the final steps, of course, to detonate a weapon is, of course, you have to, the, uh, what we would call the X unit or the fire set has to be armed. And, of course, there's other components that are required to uh, fire a nuclear weapon. For example, there's what's called a tritium reservoir. It contains a tritium-deuterium gas, which is injected into the hollow pit. 
had to the weapon had to go through before it was uh, you know could detonate in the nuclear sense. Uh, we mentioned the, the free fall weapon. That weapon fell to earth and it actually penetrated into the ground. It was basically, of course, destroyed a telescope within itself, and the, the secondary actually separated. In that case, the secondary, they estimate, probably went down about another 75 feet or so. They excavated the area uh, during the excavation. They actually recovered some of these components, and in the course of doing so, they recovered the arming switch, and it was destroyed uh, when it hit the earth, but they thought at first that the arming switch had armed. Now, of course, that would be a, a great matter of concern, and Jim and I have gone through the... the uh, reports, and we determined that there's actually another arming switch that had to be activated before final arming and firing. That was called the trajectory arming switch. And they actually, uh, in documentation, they actually noted that there was probably a need for a trajectory arming switch for nuclear safety. Okay. But, uh, you, you did mention that, the, you know, there was a lot of concern, and it, it was a serious incident. That's... that's <laughs> That can't be denied. I mean, it was a wake-up call as far as nuclear safety went. Okay, so, uh, Jim, now, could you yeah. summarize for us uh, safeties? Uh, how many safeties, like a safety on a gun, how many safeties are there on a hydrogen bomb that you have to activate in order to, for the thing to detonate? And in this incident, exactly how close did we come to setting off all these safeties? It depends, actually, on the weapon and and when it was manufactured, the age and the, the development of the technology, there's probably on that Mark 39, I believe there were seven safeties, mm-hmm. um, two of which did not arm. So there actually was little possibility that it would have detonated nuclearly. So, in other words, there were about seven safeties. Five of them were set off, but two of them held, and that prevented any possibility of an accidental detonation. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it functioned as designed. Uh-huh. And what did the military learn after that? This is probably the closest we've ever come, right, to an actual detonation? Um, that we know of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's move on to 1966. Uh, This time we're going to go to Spain uh, in an incident that was widely reported in the European press. Uh, This time four hydrogen bombs uh, fell out of the bomb bay when there was a KC-135 refueling tanker that collided with the military weapon. Four hydrogen bombs fell out. Three landed on this tourist town and one landed in the Mediterranean. And it caused mass panic, mass evacuation, widespread coverage in the European press because there was a live hydrogen warhead sitting in the Mediterranean. And according to press reports, uh, the military then sent the Alvin submarine, which is very famous because the Alvin submarine also went down to the Titanic and took those uh, incredible pictures of the Titanic. The Alvin submarine reached out, located the fourth hydrogen bomb, reached out with its grappling uh, hooks, grabbed the weapon, and missed. As a consequence, the bomb tumbled further into the Mediterranean, causing even more panic in this tourist town. Meanwhile, the military came in with trucks and began to cart off all the radioactive materials 
Uh, one bomb had completely broken open and released its plutonium. Now, these are the press reports. Tell us now what actually happened. Uh, Mike. <laughs> well, uh, I guess the, the press is pretty much uh, spot on when they're, when they're discussing, you know, the incident in general. But, uh, of course, we have uh, the classified documentation that discusses basically the what happened to every single individual weapon. Uh, for example, uh, you mentioned that, the, of course, the one weapon that fell into the, uh, the Mediterranean, and of course, that was recovered after, I think, uh, two months or more. Uh, that's interesting because I read a post-mortem report on that, and even at that depth, the uh, the seawater did manage to penetrate all into the weapon components and, and soak the high explosives and everything. So basically, the the weapon you know couldn't have detonated. It was basically inerted in, in a you know an explosive sense. Um, the other weapons, of course, two weapons did land on the Spanish soil and. There was some uh, plutonium contamin contamination, and it was, of course, a very serious uh, accident. Uh, we have re we have reports of that uh, that we're going to put in our next book. Basically, of course, we're going to expand on a lot of the accidents and introduce some new accidents. But uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff. I guess we can we can discuss on Palomares. In fact, uh, one of my friends up in Montana was actually involved in that uh, accident. He was flying a he's the pilot of a KC-135. And he got a message to switch lead aircraft during the refueling. So that's a rather strange incident there. And, um, Jim, could you elaborate on the cleanup operation? According to press reports, of course, widely covered in the European press. In fact, there's even a book, a book about the Palomares incident. Uh, many trucks had to come in to hard cart off large quantities of radioactive soil. Uh, any comments? Yes, that's true. There was a lot of... Um two weapons detonated on impact of the soil. Um, the high explosive in them detonated. Those weapons did contain a measure of plutonium, which, of course, um, is more hazardous than depleted uranium. And that's basically what they were cleaning up. Um, I believe there were some tomato patches that were involved. A lot of people... Um, Basically, the material was, topsoil was scooped off, put into containers, and sent back to the States, and buried. And as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that fourth hydrogen bomb that fell into the Mediterranean that was reclaimed by the Alvin submarine is on display. In fact, yes, I visited it. it. It's in the Albuquerque Atomic Museum. And as I understand, um, it has a dent in the front part of the bomb when the bomb impacted, and I believe it's on the cover of your book. Is that true? Yes, yes it is. Yeah, the dent actually is in the it's in in the in the material. It's a honeycomb material that's designed to absorb impact, and there's no no bomb components actually involved in that area of the weapon. Mm -hmm. That was simply honeycomb material that collapsed. Okay, now let's move on. Uh, we talked about South Carolina, North Carolina, Palomares, and now let's talk about Greenland, just two years after the famous Palomares incident. Um, this time we dropped uh, atomic bombs on the ice in Thule, Greenland, and had to send in huskies 
and other kinds of elaborate equipment to reclaim radioactive ice. Well, that's according to the press reports. Tell us now, Mike, what really happened in 1968 in Greenland. Well, we had a B-52 uh, from Plattsburgh Air Force Base, which I used to be stationed at, but of course not during that time frame. Uh, it was flying an airborne alert mission, and uh, they had a fire in the cockpit, and they couldn't uh, put the fire out. They decided to head for Thule and hopefully make an emergency landing. Well, uh, the situation uh, degraded very quickly, and smoke was in the cockpit. The crew uh, flew over the base. Actually, they actually flew over the base and uh, <laughs> ejected, and the aircraft kept flying for a little bit, and it started a turn. And approximately seven miles from the base on the sea ice, the aircraft impacted. And we found some uh, documents that indicate that the aircraft probably hit the sea ice at going over 600 knots, which I believe is pro- approximately about 660 miles an hour. Um, and in that case, in, in the weapons it was carrying, it was carrying four thermonuclear weapons, in a, what we call a clip-in. And at that speed, it, there's I don't believe there's no chance at all that any weapon could survive an impact with a high explosive. Now, we do know from reading the, the documentation that uh, I'd say with 100% uh, reliability, all four weapons were destroyed. We know that from reading the documentation that they recovered four tritium reservoirs almost two miles from the point of impact. And like I mentioned before, you had that aircraft come in at that speed, bam, hit the sea ice at the, I don't, I don't know exactly how the down angle it was, but we know it was coming down pretty quick and at a steep angle, and we all know the, the force and physics involved when you hit something, you know, it's like you to throw a football or a basketball on the ground, it's going to ricochet off, and that's exactly what those uh, bomb components did. Now, they, there was some concern, of course, about maybe a, a weapon that maybe sunk through the ice or weapons. They uh, actually released that in some press releases. And, uh, of course, given their experience uh, in Spain, I don't think that would have presented a problem recovering any weapons that were under the sea ice at the time because the depth of uh, Volstenholm Bay was approximately 800 feet. But we do know, of course, uh, we've actually reviewed all the message traffic that they declassified several years ago. It's about 300 pages, and they list all the components. And We've actually got to have a chart in our new book that's going to list all the weapon components. It, you know, it's all unclassified. So we can, we can say with, uh, you know, 100% surety that all four bombs were, in fact, destroyed. So there's no missing nuclear weapon in Thule. Okay, Jim, any more comments about this uh, mess in Thule, Greenland? I'm sure the Greenland government wasn't too happy about the fact that they had all this radioactive ice. Uh, but any comments? Um, yeah, the, the key comment is, I think, the fact that even though the, the four weapons sustained a huge impact, they did not detonate nuclearly. Uh, there was no nuclear detonation. Um, they were actually in a safe condition when the aircraft crashed. And they just, the radioactivity was spread based on the detonation of the explosive in the in the weapon. And it did take quite a while to clean it up. I mean, they were working in conditions of minus 50 degrees in the dark. The Danes were concerned, but I don't think they were panicked about it. I don't remember reading anything to that effect.
Well, that concludes the first part of Exploration. Our special guests were Michael Magellet and James Oskins, two former military men who wrote the book Broken Arrow about the secret history of top-secret classified nuclear weapons accidents. And then in the second half of Exploration, we're going to bring on Michael Moore, the peace activist. We'll talk about the Twilight War in Outer Space, the war that's going on even as we speak, a secret war. In other words, Star Wars 2.0 being fought secretly among the great powers. And again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. This is Exploration. Stay tuned for the second half of Exploration. Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we brought on two former military men involved with handling our top-secret nuclear weapons stockpile. They're authors of the book Broken Arrow. In other words, the secret history of nuclear weapons accidents. When we drop nuclear weapons into the Atlantic Ocean, into South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia... We've dropped nuclear bombs literally on people's backyards. And now in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about a secret war, a twilight war, a war that's going on even as we speak in outer space. In other words, Star Wars 2.0. With us today is Michael Moore, not the filmmaker, but the peace activist. He's the author of the book Twilight War. The Folly of U.S. Space Dominance. So we're going to talk about the effort to control outer space, the twilight war that's going on even as we speak. I'd like to bring on our special guest today. We're very delighted to have with us Michael Moore, not the filmmaker, but the weapons analyst, author of the book Twilight War, The Folly of U.S. Space Dominance. You know, the United States bombed the moon. Does it have military value? Well, not really. However, there's a larger question, and that is in the future. In the future, nations will see space as a military asset. We saw that during the Gulf War crises. And then the question is, what steps, what secret steps are nations making right now, even as we speak, to prepare for a possible war in outer space? A war that could wipe out satellites, it could cause a tremendous collapse of the industrial infrastructure as power lines go out, communications go blank, the internet is stopped. It could cause all sorts of havoc if we have a war in outer space. 
So with us once again is Michael Moore. The book is called Twilight War, The Folly of U.S. Space Dominance. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in peace and disarmament issues? I've been interested in peace and disarmament issues uh, all my adult life, and certainly after we had children, I, it became a more personal thing to me. I've always thought uh, nuclear weapons were clearly immoral, and, and, uh, and that goes back to well, the 1950s. And tell us about your involvement with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. But I became editor in, in 1991 and retired in, in 2000, and that was the end of the Cold War. Our circulation was slipping, and I told the board at my first board meeting we should be overjoyed that our circulation was slipping because that meant the nuclear threat was, uh, was waning. Uh, but I, I got involved because I wanted to do whatever I could to ensure that nuclear weapons were never again used. Okay. Now, most Americans don't know that there is a very fierce competition to dominate outer space. They heard about the Chinese test that took place several months ago, and many analysts were outraged that thousands of pieces of debris uh, are now in orbit around the Earth as a consequence of the Chinese test. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the Chinese test. Well, it, it was uh, a test in January of last year and they smashed an alien weather satellite, a Chinese weather satellite, with a so-called kinetic kill weapon, which means they just uh, ran into it, smashed it into uh, many, many thousands of pieces. It, it uh, replicated a test in a rough kind of way that we conducted in 1985. Uh, the Chinese test is interesting because the Chinese have wanted us to, uh, us meaning the United States and the rest of the world, to negotiate a, a new outer space treaty that would prevent any kind of conflict in space and weapons in space and space-related weapons on the ground and so on. And we have dismissed that. Uh, every time the Chinese have brought it up, we have dismissed the idea. And I, I regard it as a shot across the bow. The Chinese were saying, if you intend to dominate space, we're going to challenge you. But we would rather, the Chinese would rather, negotiate a treaty. Okay. Now let's say a few things about the past, because most people were caught flat-footed when the Chinese test took place, not realizing that there's a long history of this going all the way back to the beginning of the space age. So isn't it true that even with the launching of Sputnik back in 57, there were voices talking about a potential war in outer space? Oh, absolutely. And uh, the, uh, President Eisenhower anticipated uh, this kind of thing as early as 1955 and established a space-for-peaceful-purposes policy for the United States, because he, he did not want to see uh, the Cold War extended into space. He thought that would be very dangerous. Then after Sputnik, uh, a lot of people criticized Eisenhower for being flat-footed on this issue. Actually, uh, he wasn't. Uh, but, but he was widely criticized. Even his own chief of staff of the Air Force, Thomas Dresser White, argued publicly in February of 1958 that control of space should be the goal of all Americans. But uh, Eisenhower resisted that idea. He did not want to be the first president to uh, militarize space. He did not want to see the Cold War go into space. And that policy was followed by Kennedy and Johnson and eventually became the Outer Space Treaty of, of uh, 1967, an international treaty that is still in force. But isn't it true that even during that period of time, the United States was, in fact, building killer satellite systems and, in fact, had an operational system based in the Pacific with Thor missiles that actually detonated hydrogen bombs in outer space? 
It, it, it's true that the United States uh, research systems and, and uh, the Soviet Union was very uh, uh, aggressive when it came to, to space. The Soviet Union, until the Outer Space Treaty, was, was testing uh, uh, various systems. Uh, they, the Soviet Union was even talking about putting uh, uh, hydrogen bombs in space or in suborbital space. Uh, uh, there were two different systems they were talking about. And, and the United States was reactive in that respect. Uh, we did have a Thor system uh, uh, with, a, with a hydrogen bomb warhead that was to be used as an anti-satellite system. But it was a very limited system. We, we could launch two Thors, which wouldn't have made any, any real difference. And then uh, the system was, was activated, uh, but in a very uh, clumsy kind of way. It was clear to everybody that we didn't want to use it. Nobody really wanted to use it. Then later on, uh, we did test uh, nuclear weapons in space, and then one, the so-called Starfish Prime test, uh, uh, knocked out electrical service in parts of Hawaii, and, and, uh, and it killed a few satellites of other nations, and, and uh, we realized that exploding nuclear weapons in space was not a good idea. And isn't it true that Robert McNamara began to be a little bit skeptical about shooting hydrogen bombs in outer space because it would create an electromagnetic pulse. In fact, wasn't this the first time we've ever seen an electromagnetic pulse in action that could wipe out our own communication systems? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the electro electromagnetic pulse was uh, perceived as, as very dangerous to our systems and to other kinds of systems, military and civilian. And didn't Robert McNamara actually go ahead and try to deploy a anti-ballistic missile system called the Sprint, uh, which never became fully operational and wasted billions of dollars? Uh, he, he did. He was, he was very skeptical of it. Uh, he was uh, uh, pushed into it by, by hardliners on the right, and it was viewed as a Chinese, anti-Chinese system. It was pretty well understood by them that we could not uh, defeat a Soviet attack, but, uh, but we uh, believe that the Chinese would someday have missiles and then the system would uh, at least defeat a small Chinese attack. But it, it was only operational for a few months and billions of dollars were spent. Uh, it, was, it was not popular with anybody except uh, the aerospace industry and certain uh, senators and congressmen. Okay, so we went through the 60s and 70s and then in the 80s, President Ronald Reagan changes the whole landscape by talking about Star Wars, and people were talking about Buck Rogers-type laser particle beam accelerators in outer space, zapping things from outer space. What happened to the original Buck Rogers schemes? Well, the, uh, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars scheme was, was kind of fantastical. He was sold on it by Edward Teller and, and some other people, and it was viewed as an anti-ballistic missile system, and uh, we would have anti ballistic missile systems in space. We would have battle stars in space and so on and so forth. It was a kind of a crazy thing. I, I have to say Ronald Reagan was, uh, was uh, <clears throat> far-reaching in one way. He believed that, uh, that uh, the uh, mad system of uh, mutual destruction was, was literally mad. He wanted to get rid of nuclear weapons, and he believed that the Star Wars system would do that. Meanwhile, there were, there were people on his staff and in his administration he viewed it as a way of uh, advancing space control. If, if we had anti-ballistic missile systems, we could also have anti-satellite systems, and we could control space. It, but
but it just wasn't technically possible then. It may be technically possible now to to hit satellites from space. It still isn't possible to hit ballistic missiles, in my opinion. Now, if you do, in fact, have a Star Wars shield, isn't that also a potential first strike weapon? President uh, Richard Nixon used this analogy. Nixon said if you have two gladiators, the first gladiator strikes first, uh, disarming most of the enemy's ability, and then you have a shield to absorb a weakened second strike from the second gladiator. So in some sense, this system is not only a defensive system, it's also an offensive first strike system, right? You're, you're, you're right about that. Uh, almost any defensive system of that kind uh, can be viewed as, a, as part of a first strike system. And, and that's very dangerous. It's unstable. And that's why very many, a lot of military people actually oppose these kinds of systems because of the dangers of being viewed as a first strike system. Uh, the people who push it most ardently tend to be civilians, people who have never been in war, don't understand war, and who have hardline ideology. Okay, so in the 80s came the big disappointment that Ronald Reagan's great schemes uh, violated the, the known laws of physics and the known laws of technology. However, in the 90s, isn't it true that the United States kept on going with a limited off-the-shelf Star Wars system, uh, shooting a bullet with another bullet over the Pacific? It, 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 it's true that in the 90s we, uh, we continued uh, these systems, but mainly after the fall of the Soviet Union, a new paradigm emerged, uh, which had the support of a lot of military people as well as hardline civilian people. Uh, they, it went like this. The Cold War had been very dangerous to, to both the United States and the Soviet Union. We should not permit another existential threat to the United States. Therefore, the way to do that was to be overwhelmingly militarily dominant on, on land, at sea, in the air, and in space. And, and uh, I'm very concerned about the space end of that because the, uh, the idea that space should be reserved for peaceful purposes as part of international law. But uh, during the 90s, great uh, progress was made in uh, developing the, the doctrine for space control and, and even uh, the hardware to exercise space control. Okay, now take us to the present. Uh, take us to the present in the sense of what are the capabilities of the United States, Russia, and China vis-a-vis space weapons? What's the state of the art today? Well, the state of the art is, is this. The United States is many, 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 many years ahead of China and the United and, and uh, Russia in terms of being able to control space with anti-satellite weapons. Uh, we, are, we are working on several techniques. The, the most important, really, is, is uh, small robotic satellites that can be launched into space and, and seek and find and rendezvous with any satellite uh, we want them to. And, of course, if you can rendezvous with another satellite, uh, then you can do damaging things to it. Uh, we call these uh, robotic satellites uh, uh, peaceful in that they could service future American satellites. But, uh, but uh, you can call that peaceful if you want. But if, if you can, come up to another satellite and service it, you can also destroy it or damage it. Uh, we're very far along in these programs. We're also working on a ground-based laser system that could damage or possibly even destroy satellites of other nations in space. And in fact, wasn't there a Star Wars test, oh, maybe 10 years ago, where 
the space shuttle was supposed to intercept a laser beam from the planet Earth. However, they, they misread inches and meters. And as a consequence of that, the media picked up on it. Uh, because we misread meters and inches, the space shuttle oriented itself toward outer space rather than toward the Earth. And as a consequence, the Star Wars test failed. But isn't it true, therefore, that we are using the space shuttle to test space weapons in the sense that we shoot lasers, very low-power lasers, at the space shuttle? Well, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't call those weapons tests. Uh, we are researching lasers, and, then, and in fact, we, uh, we illuminated uh, a, a satellite in 1997 with a low-power laser. But, but we are working on the technology. But, but the main thing we're working on are these robotic small satellites, because they have the potential for doing almost anything we want to in space. Uh, they have the potential for hitting targets in low Earth orbit, which is just a few hundred miles above the Earth, or in higher orbits, uh, many thousands of miles above the Earth. Uh, that's where the big threat is right now, and other countries understand this. They're very uh, very keen on, on developing a treaty that would stop the development of such uh, weapons. Now, isn't it true that smaller nations like India, being outgunned, and being overwhelmed by U.S. technology, uh, have issued some dark threats that they may launch what is called a keg of nails. A keg <laughs> of nails would be a barrel of nails with gunpowder inside, very low-tech. You simply detonate it in outer space, and since most satellites are European and U.S. satellites, these nails then basically wipe out a good chunk of, of U.S. systems. Well, so that, this that, is that, that's one of the ultimate nightmares in, in the space business. Uh, it's very easy to, to destroy a satellite, any kind of satellite of any size, by, by putting uh, debris, uh, pellets, gravel, nails, whatever, in the orbital path. And then that idea has been around for at least 40 years. And uh, it, it, it's, a terrible, it's a terrible thing if, if you do that. And if you do several of those, you could, you could drain the space almost forever. Now, the question is, who would suffer the most if there is a showdown in outer space? The Chinese have an expression, never pick up a rock only to drop it on your own feet. Now that the United States is reaching for superiority in outer space, the question is, will it drop it on its own feet? So who would suffer the most if war breaks out in space? Well, you're, you're getting to the heart of an important issue, a dispute between a lot of high-level military people, mainly in the Air Force, and civilian hardliners. Uh, the uh, high-level military people in the Air Force tend to argue we have the most to lose, meaning the United States. About 850 active satellites are in orbit, and about half of those, a little bit more than half, are American. So if we ever had a conflict in space, uh, we would... Uh, and the risk of losing many, many, many of our own satellites. So the, the argument, and I've heard this from, from colonels and generals, the argument is why are we being so belligerent in our space policy? Why are we, uh, why are we uh, using rhetoric and developing hardware that might start another arms race? Because if the arms race ever turns to, into a conflict, we do have a lot to lose. Now, if you have two gunfighters about to shoot it out at OK Corral, and one gunfighter grabs sand and throws sand in the enemy's eyes, blinding the enemy, that's like space war, in which case the blinded gunfighter then shoots randomly in all directions. So if it does come to space war, not only do we have all the space debris in outer space, 
But won't the blinded enemies basically fire randomly and create even more havoc? Well, uh, that's another important argument. Uh, uh, war games have borne this out that, that if we uh, play a war game, and if we, as you put it, blind the other side by damaging their satellite, uh, there's going to be retaliation. It's going to be uh, much more random than it would have been otherwise. It, it's a very dangerous business to uh, take out the other nation's satellite. Uh, and uh, I, I have to emphasize that a lot of military people are really against this aggressive space policy we're talking about. There's a real split here between uh, hardliners, neoconservatives, triumphalists on the one side, and, and, and fairly sober military people on the other side. Now, Vladimir Putin has basically gone ballistic over the Star Wars anti-missile system being based in Eastern Europe, uh, even though the United States has tried to reassure it that it's basically to be used against Iran and, quote, rogue nations. The Russians are fuming that it's basically in their sphere of influence. So tell us what's happening now in Europe. <laughs> well, you know, we, we are talking about uh, having two facilities in, in, in Europe, and, and uh, the Russians are very unhappy about that because it would be a little bit like uh, the Russians putting a couple of systems into, uh, into Canada. I mean, it's right on their doorstep, as Canada is on ours. And uh, if, if you put facilities on their doorstep, who's to say that 10 years from now that we won't uh, use them in other ways as coercive tools against Moscow? It's a very ambiguous situation. Uh, countries or national leaders uh, look at the intentions of other countries, but they mainly look at capabilities. Intentions can change, but capabilities uh, do not change so easily. And if one country has, uh, has uh, a lot of power in one area, they may say, we will not use it now. But 10 years from now, the intentions may change, and the Russians are very conscious of that. And Putin even raised the stakes uh, last year when he put uh, his weapons uh, basically on alert status and threatened Europe with nuclear retaliation. So this is really upping the stakes, right? And while in the United States there's almost no publicity around this, uh, the Russians are fuming. Well, uh, they're, they're fuming, but, but this alert business is, is, is rhetorical. Uh, both countries, both the United States and Russia, have weapons on, on alert, and uh, they say they're detargeted, but it's just a matter of... It would take a matter of minutes to retarget them. Uh, it, 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 it's done for rhetorical effect. It, it's, uh, it's not uh, a strategic change, in my opinion. Now let's talk about China. If you read the Chinese concerns, uh, first of all, they believe that a Star Wars system would decouple Taiwan away from mainland China. And China has said, more or less, that there's only one scenario only one scenario in which they would unleash the power of their military, and that is over Taiwan. So isn't the United States uh, touching very sensitive uh, areas when there is a possible decoupling of Taiwan from China, in which China, in which case China has already stated that it will go to war? Well, the, the Chinese-Taiwan situation, I think, has been handled very clumsily in this country. Uh, you're, you're quite right. The, the Chinese... Uh, the Chinese will not tolerate a true independence move uh, by Taiwan. On the other hand, uh, the, the Taiwanese tend to act very independently in, in many areas, and we have sold them weapons for years and years and years. Uh, it, it's always a tense situation. And uh, the space assets used for military purposes have accentuated this. 
uh, one of the uh, favorite uh, war games being played in the military over here is what if the Chinese uh, launch a surprise attack against satellites, which are, in effect, uh, surveilling China and Taiwan? What if they blind us? What do we do then? And I, I, this is kind of a silly scenario. Uh, the Chinese have no interest in taking on the United States militarily. Uh, they make goods for the United States. They make goods for the Western world, and they need those jobs. Meanwhile, we need the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese are buying roughly $200 billion worth of, of treasury notes and bonds every year. That keeps our interest rates low. Uh, we're in bed together financially, economically. So why would there be a military challenge from China? Why, why can't we cooperate? Uh, we're in a new century. I think the old Cold War paradigms don't work anymore. Now, it's been noted that even a limited Star Wars shield might might conceivably be affected not against 1,000 missiles, but against 20 missiles. And it's also been pointed out that the Chinese have approximately 20 missiles that might be able to reach California. Now, given the mathematics of the fact that even a limited Star Wars system might be affected against a full-scale Chinese attack on California, isn't that concern on the part of the Chinese? It, it, it's been a concern since the 70s. Uh, our limited, uh, so-called limited missile defense system proposed in the 70s was, uh, was advertised by McNamara as an, as an anti-Chinese system. And uh, war games today uh, still uh, look at the Chinese threat, I put threat in quotation marks, and then the anti-ballistic missile system, which we advertise as being uh, aimed at North Korea and, and Iran, is viewed by very many military people and and, and uh, hardliners as an anti-Chinese system, as a as a way of hedging our bets against the so-called Chinese threat. The Chinese understand this perfectly well. Everybody in the uh, military space business understands that it, it well too. Uh, our our anti-ballistic missile system is not aimed at North Korea or Iran. It's aimed at China. And let's say a few things about Iran. Uh, it was just announced uh, yesterday uh, that Israel, uh, senior officials in Israel, have just announced that it appears as if uh, an attack on Iran is inevitable. So some people say, uh, in defense of a uh, Star Wars-type shield and Star Wars-type funding, they say that warfare in the future will be waged from outer space, like the Persian, Persian Gulf War, uh, most of that was actually waged from the air rather than from the ground. So what do you say to those people who say that in order to defend Israel or in other regional conflicts, we have to dominate space? Well, I, I say to those people that it's, it's fantastical that uh, uh, aggressive moves in space are more likely to start a war than to prevent a war, uh, more likely to start an ar arms race than to, to prevent an arms race. I, I, I believe in, in this century the, the way forward is, is simply to sit down and, and talk and see if we can negotiate a treaty that would prevent uh, any nation from dominating space or having the capability to control space. And back since 1981, uh, delegates to the U.N. have voted every year since 1981 to ask the Conference on Disarmament to uh, sit down and draft a space treaty, a new space treaty, that would prevent an arms race in space. Every year they vote for that, and every year the United States blocks any such discussions at the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva. 
So now let me ask you a purely hypothetical question. Let's say all the talks break down. What would a worst-case war look like in outer space? Well, when you say it's a worst-case scenario, it it truly is. And what it would look like, basically, would be that uh, other countries uh, would smash satellites with kinetic kill weapons. We might not smash satellites. We might use other methods of damaging or destroying uh, satellites of other nations. But in any event, you're going to end up with a lot of debris in space, in low Earth orbit space. And if you do that, you're likely to render space useless for any purpose for many hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. If you create a lot of debris in space, and and already we have nearly 18,000 pieces bigger than my, my fist circling the Earth, and those are big enough to destroy any satellite, including the space station. If, if, you, if you create enough debris in low Earth orbit, you make space unusable. And that means you can't replace communication satellites and global positioning satellites and weather satellites as they were out. And the global economic system would collapse. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. Once again, in the first half of exploration, we had Michael Magellet and James Oskins talk about the secret history of broken arrows, nuclear weapons accidents. And in the second half of exploration, we brought on Michael Moore, the peace activist, talking about twilight wars in outer space. And you are listening to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 7350230 Good day. <laughs> <laughs>